You're listening to The Real Word Podcast, produced by Reading Opens Minds. I'm Lauren, and in this episode, we're talking about the book The Tattooed Soldier by Hector Tobar. The Tattooed Soldier was first published in 1998 by Delphinium Books and was hailed by LA Weekly in 2014 as the best LA novel ever. The story of The Tattooed Soldier begins with Antonio a refugee from Guatemala's dictatorship during the 1990s who stumbles upon his wife's killer in MacArthur Park, recognizing the soldier by his unforgettable tattoo. He plots his act of personal justice as Los Angeles explodes into what we now know as the LA riots. I had the great pleasure of speaking a bit with the author, Hector Tobar, about his early days of journalism and covering the LA riots. So you're a journalist and a writer, and you're the son of Guatemalan immigrants. Correct. What got you into writing? Wow. Well, when I was growing up um, in South Whittier, uh, in the suburb of Los Angeles, I wrote for my high school newspaper. And, um, you know, I was kind of a geeky kid, kind of quiet. Um, but writing for the newspaper suddenly gave me this public persona. And um, I remember really distinctly when the kids on the high school football team would read the stories that I wrote about their games and just what a validation that was. And then later when I went to college, um, I, you know, I discovered that writing was something that I did well. I did not know that it, writing was a profession. I did not know that you could be a novelist or a book writer. I didn't know, I, I didn't know how you became one, and I didn't really have much of an amb- ambition to become one. Um, but, you know, just as time passed, I eventually uh, did a lot of volunteer work uh, with writing. I wrote for a college magazine, a third world college magazine. And um, and then when I graduated from college, I sort of drifted from job to job and I began volunteering for a community newspaper. And that volunteer gig really was what got me hooked on writing as a profession. And that's that's when my career as a professional writer began when I was about 24 years old. And then I read that you covered the L.A. riots when you were about 29. Correct, yes. That, that's kind of young to be handling that coverage. This well, kid you know, I was, I was a street reporter. So I was thrown out into uh, the streets of Los Angeles. Um, actually, by that time, I was already covering a government beat. I was the L.A. County Board of Supervisors reporter. Um, but you know, this was, uh, the verdict was coming in the Rodney King case. So it was an all hands on deck type moment. So I was sent out the second day of the riots to do street reporting. And I began, um, in Slauson Avenue, um, in yeah. South LA. And I followed the fires northward all the way to Echo Park, Silver Lake. In fact, I even ended up in, uh, East Hollywood, which is where I was sort of raised as a kid where I went to elementary school. So I followed that riot across maybe 20 miles of urban landscape, passed through Koreatown. But, you know, to me, it was watching history and seeing seeing this event that you could feel building up in the city's history, all the frustration over, uh, you know, uh, uh, police shootings of civilians, all the frustrations over poverty in the immigrant community. So you just sort of felt this building up for years and years, and it finally exploded. We ask our group if they connected to the book more deeply because it's set here in L.A. Okay, so I like the Spanish. I really like the Spanish part because I'm like, oh, I get this. Oh, um, 
oh, I know what he's talking about. Like, I could connect and relate to it. Did anyone else feel connected to it? Yes? Hands? Yes, yes, yes? How so? I felt like I could have gone to those places. Right? Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because during that time, uh, I went go volunteering in LA. So when I heard all the street names in the book, I'm like, oh, wait, I think we passed by there when I walk. Or, oh, wait, third? Oh, that's why I volunteer. It was really cool. I know where Maine is. I know where Broadway is. Yeah, yeah like, I, I can, like, relate. I'm like, oh, I, I, I've been there before. Like, I've been to Los Angeles and everything. I feel kind of sick of it. And I guess that's why when I was reading it, I was like, um, I already know this. I like, I, I can't really, like, I relate to it, but I, I can't. I want something fresh and new in my mind. And so then I think that's why I didn't really typically like it. Got it. So you like to read about other books because that feels like an escape, whereas this feels like home. Yeah. Were you familiar with this population of homelessness in this specific area? Yeah, I actually, almost all the streets that there, well, where I got to, the streets that they were mentioning and everything, I already, like, I pretty much knew it, because, like, usually my brother would take me to homeless places, so then I already recognized them and everything, and then I'm like, um, I already, I already know this, I don't need you to remember me about it, so, yeah. We talk about empathy for the two main characters in the book, who, by the end of the book, have both committed murder and one student wishes for a different outcome. Okay, so I felt like their stories were pretty similar. Like, I mean, I know Longoria was kidnapped, but he was still forced to survive. And I think in that aspect, so was Antonio. Like, you know, he was, he survived, but he didn't, well, he did kill so, but he didn't really mean to kill him. That was revenge, but that wasn't for survival, you know? He was, that was like an offset to survival. So he, he wanted it for revenge, but Longoria did it because you know, he was forced to, but he wasn't, I mean, he had a choice. He could have escaped the military, but he eventually learned to love it and adopt it as like part of himself. So I kind of wish that Antonio had taken the time maybe to, I mean, in an ideal, in an ideal situation, I would have wished that Antonio would have taken the time to actually talk to the sergeant to actually like understand why he did it. Like, I don't know if he just thought that, um, that the sergeant just did it to do it, or if he knew that he was part of the army. Like, if he knew that he was part of the army, maybe he wouldn't have acted the way that he did, or his reasoning behind it. I don't know, that's my idea. Like, and when I first started reading, I thought they were gonna meet, and then they were gonna become friends, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then, and then, yeah, like, they would've, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see, I, I thought it was so sad that he just like ended up killing him. Like he didn't even, I don't know, it was, I don't know, I wish they would have talked it out <laughs> instead of just killing him and then dragging him and then leaving him in the tunnel. I asked Hector about that. One of our students said that she wished that Antonio and Longoria could have met each other and gotten to know each other's stories and develop some empathy and maybe it not ending in death and revenge? How come you chose not to do that? Um, well, I think that Antonio's motivations um, were uh, too, too, too deep, too, had too much anger attached to them to, to embrace forgiveness. I think he had to, he had to do what he needed to do. He had felt himself to have been a weak person like a lot of people who lose someone, 
when you lose someone many times, even, even if it's not a rational thought, you do believe that somehow you could have done something to save someone. I, I've, you know, I, I've experienced this and I think a lot of people do. And so I wanted Antonio to have that frustration. And the resolution to that is it's not an intellect, you know, he's lived his life as an intellectual. The response suddenly isn't an intellectual one. It's a very visceral one, something from the gut. And so, um, you know, so a lot of things in human life are like that. They come from the gut. And that's, that's where the novel comes from. Then the group talks a bit about the main love relationship mentioned in the book. And like, I liked Antonio, but to, but to a point, I don't like the way he romanticized, like he had this idea of Elena and his baby and he like put them on a pedestal. And then you go back to the book and you realize their relationship wasn't very like, wasn't very um, ideal. It wasn't stable at all either. So I, I thought he just put them on a pedestal and like, what do you think dead. wasn't stable or ideal about their relationship? Wasn't, I mean, they started fighting like every two minutes. And then at the end, he would beg for her forgiveness. I don't know. I think it has to be kind of mutual. I don't know. But, um, like, I know some of the things he said weren't, like, right. But uh, I understood that part, why Elena would get mad. But, I mean, they fought, like, every two seconds. And I just, I thought that wasn't ideal. And how he blamed her for, like, getting pregnant and everything. For her getting pregnant when it was a mutual thing. So I broached this with Hector. Another student was talking about how Antonio seemed to have mythologized the relationship with Elena. Oh, wow. And that m maybe, it, you know, we kind of find out later that there's a different texture to it than he lets on, mm -hmm. you know, as far as it being more volatile, I guess. Right. Do you think right, that... Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, things I, I've learned in the years since, I remember hearing somebody say this, is that, um, you know, when you lose someone, um, the, the, autumn, the first reaction you have is to make them into a saint, you know. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, the, the novelist, the historian knows that there are no saints. There are no um, perfect heroes, uh, you know, in, in history, you know. And so, um, yeah, I think that um, to me, in constructing their relationship, I had to draw on my own experiences from relationships. And, um, you know, all relationships are filled with conflict. Uh, people um, evolve and mature uh, in relationships. Uh, you know, um, uh, becoming a parent teaches you many lessons. I had not had many of those lessons yet when I wrote The Tattooed Soldier. But now, uh, but, but I, I, I think I intuited the, I could see the evolution of my own parents' relationship, for example, which was not a very positive one after they, after they had a child out of wedlock. You know, that's mm. the, the term, you know, the, at time yeah. let her become pregnant. And um, obviously, all those things can cause a lot of strain in a relationship. Elena's a little bit strong-headed and stubborn. I've known a lot of people like that. Sometimes I'm that way myself. <laughs> and so, yeah, those are just human qualities that you give to these people who become real to you as you create them. And you sort of, you want to feel your way into them as people. Well, that made me curious. So I asked Hector a follow-up question about how things change. Longoria and Antonio's story at your age now with all of your experience would it be different in any way? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent different. You mean if I were to write that same book now from the beginning, the same story? The same story. You know, yeah. I think that I, one of the things that I regret the most about, um, the tattooed soldier 
is that I had not really had a deep reading of Hamlet. You know, the thing is I had a terrible public school education, like many people <laughs> who've gone to public school in Southern California. I, I mean, there are many great public schools. I did not have a great one. I was in gifted programs, but I never had a, that literature professor who sort of turned me on to uh, to Shakespeare. I remember buying, uh, reading Hamlet for the first time because, you know, those scholastic book club kind of things where I filled out, I, I, I bought how, you know, Shakespeare's three tragedies, you know, Hamlet, Macbeth, and probably Othello, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or Lear, it's probably Lear. Mm -hmm. I bought these, you know, in a, in a little, you know, paperback that I bought on my own. I read on my own. I, I had no teacher to teach me Hamlet when I was a teenager. And so in the years since I've seen, I've read Hamlet like three or four times, including this past summer. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a couple of great productions, including one at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, Okay, and I'm an older person too, and um, you know, and I've been through loss a few times, um, you know, and and so I just really I feel like I could have done so much more poetically mm. uh, and emotionally uh, and artistically with that character of Antonio, but you know, every book is that way. Every book leaves you with a feeling of you know that you could work on a book forever, and I could say the same thing about my second novel. I have a a character who um, is an antagonist who I feel is really underdeveloped, but that's just the way it goes. And now I work on my third novel, my fifth book, oh. and it's also completely different. You would you wouldn't recognize it at all from the first two books. It's completely, completely different. Back to the group. As Antonio becomes homeless at the top of the book, we touch on what homelessness must feel like. Um, well... When I was reading the book, it was kind of weird, but different than what my mom was telling me. Because, like, you know, parents, like, kind of um, tell you stuff and you kind of believe them and stuff like that. Like, when I was reading, it says that he was homeless and now, now he has to live under the, under the freeway and, and, like, all those things. And then my mom tells me, oh, but those people that are homeless want to be hom homeless. They don't just, like, they, they can get a job if they wanted to. They can, like try or something like that they just they want to be there so then when he was saying that he was like kind of like upset i was like um this is different i, I didn't really think they would feel upset i thought because like you know they don't really want to get up in life they just want to stay there i thought it was like all for everyone so then yeah and then we hear from mercedes our college counseling intern um well reading that whole part actually gave me a lot of anxiety and that was kind of like freaking me out. Um, I kind of have that fear sometimes that I could be homeless. I mean, that, it, all it takes is like one fall. And I know I'm a little older than all of you and I'm on my own. So for me, all it takes is like one fall or one, um, you know, accident or something to happen in life and then you are homeless. Um, and I have a lot of friends who unfortunately don't have a very supportive family. So a lot of them have ended up on the streets, at least at one point. I know just for me growing up, um, I was actually kicked out of my house when I was 19. So I had to like house hop for a bit too. And all I got to carry was whatever I could fit in a backpack. I asked Hector one last question about nurturing more budding Latino writers. It's really hard because I think we're really a risk averse culture. You know, Latino culture is really risk averse. People are very conservative in that sense, you know? I mean, they'll take a risk of coming to the United States. That's pretty risky. That's, now that's pretty risky. Yeah. But, but, you know, but, but even that, the goal is simply, you know, is to maintain a home. And so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our brightest uh, Latino kids are, don't see the practicality 
once they w- once they become aware of the economics of being a writer, and now more than ever, since journalism has become a pauper's profession, hmm. uh, you know, um, a lot of them are not going to ch- are not going to make that decision. It just you know th- that that saps away at a lot of our. I mean, already there's already a problem with the fact that we have a very you know we have a smaller middle class and. Los Angeles is different now because we have a lot of a Latino Latino presence in the institutions and in cultural and political institutions. So it just takes a lot to it takes there are many many hurdles to cross to try to create literary fiction or literary nonfiction that is um, edgier or more compelling. You know, um, it just it, it's a, it's an insane thing to do, really. I mean, I wrote my novel, The Barbarian Nurseries. I spent a better part of a decade working on this. It's a novel written from the point of view of two women, you know, including a white woman. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and it and it was a very slow process, very, very um, rewards that you postpone the rewards for many, many years. And it just is like this faith, you know, there's this faith involved. And I just think that it not, not just for Latinos, but for many groups that process, that long haul, just it just sort of leaves a lot of people behind, you know? I think we can all agree that our society as a whole has become a culture of instant and even disposable gratification. We need to nurture this next generation by giving our time and teaching them that, as writer Leo Tolstoy has said, the two most powerful weapons are patience and time. You've been listening to The Real Word Podcast, produced by Reading Opens Minds and edited by Saul Black. You can find us on iTunes or the podcast app on your phone or on the web at lareviewofbooks.org slash the-real-word. Thank you to the LA Review of Books staff and supporters for giving this podcast a home and some tender loving care. For more information about Reading Opens Minds, go to readingopensminds.org. There you can subscribe to our newsletter and see what else we're up to. Special thanks for this episode goes to Stacy Reeder and Mercedes Vasquez for facilitating the book club. Next episode, we'll be talking about the book, Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. I'm Lauren, and until then, happy reading.